morning, good afternoon, good evening. This is Philip Terzian, literary editor of the Weekly Standard, with my weekly podcast on the books and arts section of the Weekly Standard. And this week we're talking about the September 29th issue of the Weekly Standard. And I apologize for the interregnum between this and my previous podcast. I won't tax you with an interim uh, accounting of what was in the two sections that I've uh, missed, but uh, we're back, and I wanted to start with a description of our lead piece, which is a review of a book called The Glass Cage, Automation and Us by Nicholas Carr, a Norton book, and the reviewer is Mark Bauerlein, who teaches at Emory and writes for the Standard um, uh, frequently, and is... um, writes mostly about, at least for me, he writes mostly about uh, education, although he's a professor of English, and um, has also written a little bit about uh, the rising generation and the sort of involvement of computers in our culture and the extent to which young people are now uh, more computer literate than bibliographical and that sort of thing. But the book... Um, which is about the computerization and automation of modern life is a very interesting one because it talks about the <clears throat> the increasing and miraculous automation of um, modern American life, which is, uh, I think, by any measure, a good thing. But that it also has induced in us an inevitable uh, uh, side product or reaction, which is that we are sufficiently dependent on machines and automation um, that we have tended to forget some of the basic skills that we uh, used to cultivate. And he uses a few spectacular examples, such as in airplanes, where so much of the piloting of airplanes is now automated that when when the machine or the computer actually does make an error or something goes wrong, um, the humans who are supposed to be monitoring it uh, are uh, either caught unawares or, or uh, uh, in a situation where they can't really react it, um, successfully. Um, a little bit, I guess, like Homer Simpson being the safety director at the nuclear plant. You have, I mean, I don't want to put auto, uh, airplane pilots in that category, but um, obviously, you have humans monitoring uh, machine operations who are have been lulled by the increasing sophistication of machinery and computerization into kind of uh, falling asleep at the wheel. Um, it's certainly true with automobiles. I mean, the, the 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 simplification of automobile engines and the computerization of automobiles has been wonderful for anyone like me who grew up in the thrown rod and uh, adjusting points era of the internal combustion engines. But it also means that um, when things go slightly askew with the computer in my car, I'm uh, helpless uh, to do anything about it. So anyway, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting subject, and Mark Bauerlein, as always, uh, writes a very interesting piece on it, which I think you will enjoy which is followed by uh, an essay by Suzanne Klingenstein, who is a who uh, uh, teaches at the uh, Harvard-MIT Division of Health Sciences and Technology, but is a, a, a German by birth and frequently writes on German subjects. And in this case, she's writing about two, two books. Um, 
One is called The Golden Age Shtetl, A New History of Jewish Life in Eastern Europe, by Johannan Petrovsky Stern, published by Princeton University Press, and the other from Brandeis Press, called Everyday Jewish Life in Imperial Russia, Select Documents, 1772 to 1914. Um, what she's saying is that, um, especially since the fall of the Soviet Union, um, we're learning a whole lot more about uh, Jewish life in Eastern Europe and the old Russian Empire than we used to know. And not only are um, papers and archives and documents more plentiful now, um, but there's been a kind of renewal of interest in uh, the life that um, I would guess a majority of uh, Jewish immigrants to the immigrants to the United States uh, probably felt they were fleeing and escaping from. As often happens, there's uh, after a few generations have passed, there's now a kind of renewal of interest in the the world that they left behind. And um, these two books are instrumental in that. And very interesting. And and I, she, I mean, she does make the pointed observation that it's. It's it's rather different from the vision that you get from uh, watching Fiddler on the Roof and other sort of sentimental sentimentalizations of the general subject. Um, but um, uh, uh, as they used to say about, uh, I guess, Levy's rye bread, you don't have to, or Nathan's, whoever it was, you don't have to be Jewish to enjoy this. Um, I found it absolutely uh, fascinating. It's a world that as I say, we in America don't know a great deal about, and those whose ancestors escaped from uh, the old uh, Russian Empire um, um, didn't bring uh, too many fond memories with them. So um, it's a it's a, a, a slowly reopening chapter of of relatively modern history that I think will be of interest to many readers. That is followed by a review. Uh, by Edward Short, a frequent contributor to our pages, of a new book from uh, Judy Bachrock, who also writes for the Standard periodically. I don't, I don't ordinarily require authors and reviewers to have written for the section beforehand, but sometimes it works out that way. Um, Judy, who 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 is a a versatile writer, who is a contributing editor of Vanity Fair, and and anyways, quite a funny writer, um, has written a a rather serious book called Glimpsing Heaven, The Stories and Science of Life After Death, published by National Geographic. This is not an exploration of um, whether heaven and hell are real and that sort of thing, but the uh, phenomenon of, of, I guess, what is generally known as near-death experience, what happens to human beings uh, uh, neurologically and otherwise um, when their body shuts down. Um, we know what clinical death means, but obviously death in the, in the final sense is not defined quite as clearly as we have hitherto thought, and, and people do have these curious experiences of um, things that they see, sensations that they feel, um, uh, an almost a kind of narcotic sensation, dream sequences, um, usually attested to by people who have died clinically but then come back to life. What it all means, uh, of course, uh, we leave up to you to decide, but Judy has a, a number of very interesting anecdotes, and 
quite interesting uh, scientific observations um, done in, in conjunction with her talking about these matters with, with physicians and scientists who pondered the phenomenon. I think it's, it's an interesting subject, a kind of a haunting idea, and, 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 and Judy and Edward Short uh, treat it both very successfully, I think. I then have a, a, a longish but very charming piece by an English writer named Dominic Green, and it's about the house in uh, in Greece that was owned by Patrick Lee Fermer. Patrick Lee Fermer is an English was an English travel writer who uh, died uh, early in the century, but he was very well known for his accounts of um, traveling in the 1920s and 30s and 40s in in uh, Central and Southern Europe. He was famously involved, and in, he was in the British Army during World War II and was stationed on Crete and was the hero of a famous episode where they, he and some other commandos literally kidnapped the German uh, commander in Crete um, and turned him over to a prisoner of war camp. But in any case, he uh, had a house in uh, Kalamitsi, Greece, which uh, became a kind of... Um, pilgrimage place for his admirers over the years, and when he died in um, the early, uh, in well, 2011, actually, it wasn't that long ago, um, uh, in his mid-90s, um, the house was left in the hands of a, a, a foundation run by a museum in Athens with the idea that the house would be preserved and that it would ultimately become a retreat for writers. Um, you could spend, uh, you know, three months living in Patty Lee Fermer's house, or or two weeks, or whatever you're called for. But the fact is that over time, the the planning has not gotten very far beyond the planning stage, and and Dominic Green is a little worried about what's going to happen to the house because it is sort of in a lonely spot in the in the uh, in the Greek mountains and. Uh, over time, anything can happen, and of course, it's filled with um, his furnishings and books and whatnot. So, it's a kind of charming essay describing the house um, in its uh, the house by itself, but also um, uh, what what the prospects are for uh, it serving as a kind of living monument to uh, to Patty Lee Fermer, who's um, really one of the most admired travel writers, of, if not the most admired travel writer of the 20th century. Uh, John Podhoritz's movie review this week is of a movie entitled The Drop, which um, is a uh, New York, well, Brooklyn-based uh, sort of gangster, low-life, criminal-life movie. Um, um, sort of about the the ins and outs and ups and downs and lurid details of of the kind of um, uh, lower middle criminal life in Brooklyn of of interest notably I would guess because it happens to be the last uh, movie in which James Gandolfini of Sopranos fame appears. I won't spoil for you uh, John's observations on the movie, but the movie is The Drop. And that is the Books and Arts section for the September 29th issue. I apologize again for the delay in getting back to you, but I, 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 have, 
I'm putting my right hand up in the air and swearing on the Weekly Standard that I will be back next week uh, and every week thereafter with future podcasts about the Books and Arts section. And I thank you very much for listening to this one.